0: Welcome to the Book A Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism.
1: A warm welcome to all our listeners. I'm Rajshri Rajmon, graduate from SEPT University, Ahmedabad, also a human rights activist, academician, and a mother of two. I'm currently engaged as a senior architect with Chandramon Associates, Trivandrum Kerala, and with me today is uh, eminent uh, feminist geographer, Anindita Datta, associate professor at the Department of Geography, Delhi School of Economics, University of Delhi. With over 20 years of teaching experience, her research interests and expertise are in the area of feminist geography. She is particularly interested in indigenous feminisms, feminist practices, everyday life and everyday spaces, geographies of care, spaces of resistance, and issues of gender and epistemic violence. Her most recent uh, publication is what we are discussing today is Gender Space and Agency in India, Exploring Regional Genderscapes. Published in 2021 by Routledge, this volume is a set of 11 insightful uh, chapters by eminent researchers in each exploring links between gender, space, and agency across a diverse geographical context in India. And it's a great pleasure that uh, we would like to um, bring you here. And to begin with, is uh, the book starts with a brilliant quote by Anandita, and that is, space is not innocent of gender and gender is not unaware of space. Uh, this is this is the quote that kind of got me hooked into the entire book, which I uh, is I believe is a must reading for all architects, planners, policymakers. So to begin with, there are certain key words that the, uh, the book proposes through the, uh, through all the eleven chapters, and especially in the introduction and the concluding uh, portion, which has been written chapter which has been written by Anita. And we'll be navigating the book through these uh, four keywords to begin with. To start with, in um, first is the idea of genderscapes, which is what you begin your first chapter as. Um, how you define it as a fluid, multi-layered space that contain performances, perceptions, and portrayals of gender. I, I believe this is yes. a very new concept for us to kind of, uh, when we start reading a space a document, or document or a settlement pattern or an urban landscape to kind of read the city through a different lens altogether that, which is what you're proposing. So could you tell us more about genderscapes and then move on to uh, the term that you use, the key word in this book, which is the regional genderscape.
0: Okay, uh, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to this very exciting conversation. I'm really looking forward and what is a bonus for me is that there is going to be um, uh, a, you know, a group of architects also listening to me because I have some ideas that I wanted to share and um, get advice on from the architect community. So I'm very pleased to be here. Um, Coming to the concept of genderscape, regional genderscape, that's the term you wanted to discuss first. So um, I must admit that this uh, term, Coining this term is not mine. The term genderscape has been used earlier in the literature. If you look at Sumi Krishna's work, uh, 2001, she published a paper uh, using the term. Then in 2009, she came out with a book called Genderscape. Now, uh, Sumi has used this to look at women's roles in uh, you know, these different uh, regions as far as uh, natural resource management is concerned. And this was the time when she published in 2001, the first paper, that was the time when I was, uh, I had just, you know, completed my PhD and I had been through um, several, fe- uh, several field visits, several years of field work, etc. And the idea in my PhD thesis this was also that uh, you know there is a link between the natural landscapes and uh, the construct of gender and how should we explore this how does it manifest etc so soon after the fieldwork and when i was um, when i just submitted uh, I, I came across sumi's uh, use of the term genderscape and uh, of course we all we all know that Appadurai had already published on uh, you know, the five scapes, ethnoscapes, technoscapes, ideascapes, finance scapes and mediascapes. So what struck me was in Apadurai's work was the idea of fluidity and uh, the fact that these scapes were fluid, that these were global, these were like flows. And uh, from Sumi, of course, the term genderscape. So I think building upon their work and the findings uh, or the experiences of my field work, I uh, went ahead and extended this term to regional genderscape because my fieldwork showed that there is a link between the natural landscapes and as we know the natural landscape in India is not uniform it's not homogeneous we have a huge diversity so actually it is this diversity that somewhere underpins the different constructs of patriarchy. So, you know, patriarchy is not uniform. You have softer constructions of patriarchy in certain regions where women's work uh, was necessary to keep the rural economy going. So women in the fishing communities for example women in those areas which are historically areas of male selective out migration uh, I- areas where uh, the land holding is small the terrain is difficult so so on and so forth so i was drawing upon those insights as a geographer i was drawing upon that uh, stream of literature which was there since the 70s 60s even there have been writings about the differences in the diversity in the you know the geomorphic uh, context: the same literature has been used to talk about the different, uh, you know, agricultural uh, regions uh, to explain sun preference in certain regions, and uh, you know, uh, less daughter discrimination in rice growing areas. So all this literature was already there, and I, in a way, when I'm saying regional genderscape, it's including everything from the landscape of a particular district or a state to the literature, to the customs, rituals, to the the media, the you know, the pop uh, popular culture to everything where uh, gender is an integral, you know, is is a is, is a is a part. Uh, when when we go through
1: the whole uh, set of essays, uh, each of these chapters, and we see each of these researchers delving really deeply into that particular region, whether it is uh, in the arid zones in Gujarat or whether it is in. Uh, the rural uh, Punjab, et cetera. And where in each of these cases, we also come across that once these gender spaces are created, then they get institutionalized in that, in that they get institutionalized and then they are always lasting. It doesn't, and in terms of, and and it tends to get encoded both as the gender roles get like validity, and uh, they are kind of uh, considered as permanent uh, and static. And uh, even the relationships yeah. and how the uh, a relationship is conducted and how these spaces are negotiated are also fixed there. And then when you move to our next yeah, geography, yeah. it shifts completely.
0: Exactly. And uh, here, you know, what I wanted to add uh, is that, you know, if they seem so natural, so immutable, and uh, so here, uh, borrowing uh, Bourdieu's idea of doxa came in useful. Where we you know we take these ideas for granted, and they seem so natural and so obvious that we don't even, uh, you know, question it. Like as he said, these are things that go without saying because they come without saying. And I found this uh, very eloquent quote by Rissu where he talks about. He says the fish do not talk about the water, which kind of explains why, because we are in this genderscape and because we are. So, uh, you know, this seems so natural and immutable that we don't even question it.
1: You also use uh, the term, uh, another keyword, which I found very interesting was scripting gender. I mean, these are, um, yes, read a lot of uh, books on gender, feminism, but there are, these are certain kind of terminologies that you, keywords that you have put together here, which, and each, each of these keywords becomes many ways a very interesting lens to kind of look into
0: when i'm talking about scripting gender i mean this was one of the comments i had to face from my editors as well you know i mean the reviewers sorry what do you mean when you say scripting gender so you know i felt that uh, i wanted to foreground this relationship between space and gender and highlight the fact that uh, the two have very deep links and the gender performances, the gender roles, they are underpinned by a particular spatial uh, context, the geographical context, the social space as well. So um, the space, the role of space is uh, very, very important in shaping these gender roles, gender relations. Of course, it is uh, a do, you know, it's a kind of a two way relationship, but when I'm using the term scripting gender, I'm kind of trying to say that space is uh, actually very important in shaping these roles. And had this spatial context been uh, different, as architects, you would understand um, the spatial context, perhaps as you know, the city or the built up spaces, but I'm talking about even larger spaces, like, you know, um, uh, if you look at larger scales, uh, you look at the district, you look at the, you know, the, um, the cultural space. So that is what I mean, when I say scripting gender, that there is a very active role of space in shaping gender.
1: Uh, It's it's also interesting to see that most of our, even if we look at architectural texts, uh, most of the theories that we kind of try to apply when we are designing in the very Indian context are all theories which are from a Western, white Western perspective. And those are the theories which we are trying to, uh, which is in a totally different climatic and a geographical zone where these theories were written and which they have evolved. And that is what we are now superimposing. And that's what we are taught to superimpose, and that's what is being applied here. And uh, and it, there's yes. also this Western construct of what how Indian or or rather South Asian women are, which of of being uh, very passive. Uh, and uh, I think this yes. um, that, that's one of the reasons I, I thought this book was very relevant because it talks. It really celebrates these little. Uh, victories that they have, or the little footholds that women tend to kind of hold in, also, and which are perhaps sound like a very minor, uh, this may sound small, but then actually they are very big. They are very powerful statements that they make. Like some of the uh, statements that the women have been saying about when they talk about the women. Gujarat. Uh, the uh, I think uh, she has written. I think it was Nairvita Bandhabaia and Ashish Kumar. Uh, yeah. yes yes about uh, the drought v- villages in uh, document yeah. villages in gujarat and sure. we were talking about the women uh, those kind of spaces that is actually they are are domain i mean they don't like and they, they don't permit any uh, lack of space or any transgressing of that particular space which they call their own and that is their the the space yeah. where they get water as well as their domestic space which is the kitchen and those connected areas. True, true. Yeah, but this yeah. is not what we get so, read in the Western texts at all. I mean, the kind of portrayal they have yeah. about Indian women is very uh, different, or rather South Asian women. It's a very passive, weak kind of
0: English. Uh, 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 I, I... Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you completely, and this has been sort of uh, questioned, interrogated by several scholars, several South Asian feminist scholars, who've uh, you know who've talked about how the Western theory, uh, the theory is built in the West, and then uh, you know um, this uh, South Asian uh, region is just used as a testing ground, and we are uh, participating in most of these research projects just like informants, and we are seen as the other of the empowered. Western woman. So we are always, you know, uh, passive, lack of agency, no agency. Uh, We are somebody uh, or a community to be empowered. And I think because we are looked at with this Western theoretical lens, our own agency, which is, you know, limited, uh, might be very limited compared uh, to other forms, but it is there nonetheless. So when I'm talking, and that brings me to the other keyword, you know, I'm talking about these um, agencies that women um, use, and this has a, uh, you know, uh, and I'm talking about it in relation to space. So here I've kind of deployed the term feminist counter space. I've drawn upon readings again, uh, which were there in the literature already, James Scott, Michelle Soto, you know, all these kind of uh, uh, Abu Lugod, all these uh, works which were already there, I was reading them together and reading it against uh, some previous theorizations of space by Lefebvre. So um, this led me to understand that the way women are expressing their agency in your house, in my house, the way we've seen our mothers, grandmothers do, this needs to be visibilized. It's not that these women have been without agency, but they have. And as you pointed out in one of the essays in the book, actually, it's there in almost every essay, which is what I've talked about in the last chapter that um, women have, despite being in this tightly controlled classic patriarchy kind of situation where they are forced to make patriarchal bargains in order to survive in this patriarchy, and this is something not me, but Kandi Yoti has said much earlier, but we see it, you know, if you re- reread her work, I think you can keep reading it and it'll always be relevant. So you, when you when you take back this essay and look into your own households, look into the lives of your mothers, grandmothers, sisters, what's happening within the house, what's happening within the kitchens, you know, uh, what's happening in these women-only spaces, you see that these are spaces of resistance. These are spaces where women are negotiating their agency. The only difference is that these counter spaces, these, these the agency negotiated here, is something that remains within the household, is confined within the network of friends, family, kin networks. Of course, in my uh, last essay, I've also talked and I've later extended this work, so there are some publications coming out now where I'm talking about how these indigenous, I'm calling them indigenous feminisms, and I'll take a minute to explain the link with the architecture here. So, um, you know, how these indigenous feminisms, which have always been there, they need to be uh, sort of visibilized and uh, how we need to see them as Active resistance. Once we do that, we realize that we women in our part of the world are also not without agency. If you see only the overt resistance over the public spaces, then it seems that our movement is uh, fractured, is fragile, as compared to uh, feminist movements elsewhere. Or uh, you know, because the the women's question is not really central, but emerges as a corollary to others like the national movement, the environmental movement, all these other movements for rights human rights etc it sort of emerges from them but if you look at both aspects both uh, you know the indigenous feminisms and you look at this you know this outward these resistances over public space it's only then that you can get a complete picture now coming to the term indigenous feminisms uh, there was a time when as I said I've always been very interested in space and the way space can be transformed converted you know subverted even and I came across Um, a very interesting book by an architect, a woman architect by the name of Jyoti uh, Hosagar. And uh, she was talking about the modernity that she sees, you know, you would see these modern buildings, and then you would see, uh, you know, the layers of the old as well. So the kind of a coexistence, and she used the term indigenous modernity and that sort of sparked off and I said yeah we can also think about our feminisms as indigenous feminisms of course this was 20 years ago and I was very excited that oh look at this term indigenous feminisms and I went back to see if anyone else had used this term before and I found that actually there was this term uh, in currency and it was being used to discuss the feminisms of women who were native to the white western societies so how because their feminism was always at or with, uh, at odds with, um, you know, the feminisms of the Western society. So I extended this term to include these resistances that we see being played out in our homes by previous generations, by even our generations, in very banal everyday acts. So these were rooted in the everyday. These were, um, you know, and the very simple, like humor, everyday activities like cooking, these were all deployed to mark the uh, resistance of course in later work i have theorized further and extended this shown how these are actually a continuum right from the body to the space of the nation how you can theorize it there's also talk
1: you mentioned the need for periscoping into narratives yes
0: yes 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 yes. that's (laughs) nancy Nancy. Nancy. that's nancy Yes, yes. That's Nancy Himestra's work, uh, which, uh, you know, again, I was reading when I was talking about uh, when I was trying to theorize. And she uh, came across this essay where she she uses this metaphor of the periscope. And she says uh, that the periscope is used to look at things which are ordinarily hidden. So this seemed to be just perfect. And I think periscoping as a, um, you know, a methodology should be something that we need to foreground uh, in our, uh, you know, work as feminist geographers from this region. Because the moment you do that, and that's what I've argued in the book, that you know, if you look at, the, if you read the book after the introduction, the first chapter talks about the regional genderscapes and how space is scripting gender, and then if you stop at the 10th chapter, it seems that this is just a collection of case studies which are looking at, you know, different interventions, uh, different planning, um, you know, uh, different plans, different strategies, different interventions, people's experiences. So they are just case studies. But the moment you read the 11th chapter and you start linking this um, you uh, and you start, you know, rereading, revisiting these case studies, you realize that in each of these case studies, so this is actually an example of periscoping that you if you revisit them with the periscope or you you know you you employ periscoping you realize that in each of the chapters in each of the case studies which you were reading uh, you know from above as simple statements of how women uh, manage to negotiate with patriarchy, you realize that these are all actually um, stories of resistance. These are all stories of uh, the indigenous feminisms coming to mind, talking about a periscopic
1: way of looking into that uh, these narratives that were documented, there's also like uh, when we look into Kanchan Gandhi's uh, essay of widowhood and violence in rural Punjab and she she there is a highlight that when a singleness you know the, the whole idea of yeah the category of singleness itself is not recognized and the state actually denies no kind of assistance no if you are single yes so you either yes, have to absolutely. be married or widowed or something of, i mean you need to have somebody with you i mean some male
0: counterpart exactly and uh, uh you know raj this is the point this is the point that's running through uh my arguments is that the state keeps seeing you with this lens of classic patriarchy where you have to be you know you are either a mother or a wife uh, Gita's work talks about these productive aspects of patriarchy and the punitive aspects so I think here what is happening is uh, you know in much of our policy in much of our planning in much of our architecture the way we design spaces even here we are simply just you know extending these very deeply ingrained these toxic ideas of gender roles and gender relations so whether it is the state policy or whether it is how architects have designed the delhi airport or how they have designed the metro stations in uh, the you know on the delhi metro map you come across these different metro stations how these are designed if you walk through these spaces you realize that they are just extending these toxic understandings of um, you know uh, how gender should be what gender relations are and uh, they are not uh, the moment this changes this element changes this toxic acceptance change is very difficult but possible. And I don't know. Maybe the design, maybe the architects have a role here, a very very important role. I,
1: I, if I, I can, found it, I found it very useful uh, because th- this particular uh, periscoping is needed whether uh, we are looking at an urban design project or is it a small scale residential or is this a social housing project? This this kind of periscoping de- I mean that the whole. Uh, the study process definitely yeah. needs to be imbibed before we get on to the designing of any kind of the space. So into which culture are we designing for and where are we designing? So, so And also,
0: uh, also through our design, uh, what are we trying to convey through our design? Because, you know, uh, I find that I'm not familiar with the architecture, uh, you know, the literature and the textbooks that you read to train to become architects. But what strikes me is that when we are designing public spaces, whether it's a shopping mall or a bus stop or a city square or anything in the Indian context, we are just extending this understanding that women should be on the margins and this space is not for women. Absolutely. You look at public toilets, you know, if you look at public toilets in the metro stations or even railway stations, you find that these are placed on the edges of the platform, like the, on the ends of the platform, you know, one one corner of the, uh, the station or one corner of the platform and then there's, it will be very nondescript kind of a structure very barely functional not properly lit etc so I wonder what prevents architects and urban planners from putting these in the center whenever people are designing public spaces they seem to be designed for men like parks for example you know there'll be this green patch and then there'll be this walking trail around it and a few benches and then the whole area would be enclosed with one or two entry points which are at either end now if you're a woman in india the first thing you do when you enter this park is okay so is it safe for me to walk what if i get uh, mugged what if i get teased which are the entry uh, and exit points and there are only two why do they have to be enclosed that's my question
1: i think these are also these are kind of uh, when we design a public place or a domestic space without consideration of the other gender altogether who would also be occupying that place because i know the cities are a nightmare if one is pregnant or moving around with a baby it's just a nightmare and uh, these are also these are all gendered violence it also comes i think it's being a, the city actually or the designers are actually being violent to me by not by denying me an access to a place or denying me safety or security or and design uh, not allowing me access to a decent uh, toilet which is a human need to defecate uh, and,
0: and- yeah and placing them and you know uh, this is the Uh, part you know that's interesting that even when they are providing these facilities they are placing them in areas that are going to be unsafe to me as a woman so whether it is for my basic needs like when I'm out in the city shopping or anything I wouldn't have access to a toilet unless it's a shady part of the station where I'm very scared to go a dark part Uh, or even simple things like taking an evening walk or a morning walk why would I have to enter that park which is you know kind of enclosed and um, you know it's like the feeling of being trapped and talking about
1: gendered violence which is also something that you write about in the beginning and in the end uh, there are different forms of violence that is being discussed here where when it comes to widows there's a different kind of violence there's a different kind of uh, where I think um, uh, there is an article on the migrants as to uh, also which yeah I think which is the article now? I have forgotten. I think uh, yeah, Ajay Bailey's article. Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. he talks about performances of uh, in different migra- yeah. of migrants, migrants yeah. in different uh, yeah. inclusive yeah. and yeah. Uh, inclusive spaces and exclusionary spaces. And there are different in each of these chapters, they are talking about very very different kind of uh, violence that is meted out on another gender or uh, uh, or the other, which is popularly yes. considered as the it other. And is
0: that, uh, could you tell me something more about it? Yes, I agree with you uh, that gendered violence has been normalized to the extent that we no longer see it. It has become invisible. It has become so normalized. And and, uh, I'm arguing in my work that, uh, you know, it is not the only the extraordinary events that take place, like the Nirbhaya event that took place and shook Delhi and shook the whole country. It's not just that. People would react perhaps to those kind of um, cases, but they would keep silent in their own homes where they see this uh, kind of uh, verbal or emotional violence being meted out. So I'm arguing that there is a link, there is a dialectical link between the everyday violence that women are facing, which has become so normalized and um, with the, you know, know, the extraordinary incidents that are happening now with very alarming regularity I would definitely say that misogyny is on the rise misogyny as it intersects with other you know with uh, religious hatred with uh, caste uh, violence all these aspects need to be brought in so when you ask uh, whether uh, what we should do to mitigate I would say that there's plenty that can be done as they actually are so definitely I would say periscoping is needed I would also say a lot of um, this indigenous feminisms is practice it is it is they're part of our praxis. So we, whether we it is mandated or not, we will go on practicing. We will go on keeping silent, using silence as our tool of resistance, uh, deploying humor, doing our everyday activities and marking resistance through them. So this is something that goes on 24-7. But along with it, also, we need to be more vocal in other spaces, such as media spaces, um, social media spaces. We need to build feminist networks of solidarity. And we need to get to the root of, um, you know, this is a kind of a kind, I would say, culturally sanctioned uh, misogyny, which is underneath all this violence. And this is a very typical classic patriarchy kind of context. So we as, as this generation of feminist scholars need to question it is you and I who will question it in our classrooms, in our design studios and say, why? Why this design? Why not some other design? I will similarly in my classroom question. Why is it so naturalized that women have to fill water and bring it? Why is it so naturalized that the girl child has to drop out of school, you know, make way for her brothers? You have to imagine that uh, you have to first let go of the fact that this is there is no uh, alternative, that things have remained this way and will always be uh, this way you have to imagine that there could be a different way of occupying these spaces there could be a different way of fulfilling these roles there could be more we could center care because in one of my publications where I'm talking about motherhood and mentoring I'm arguing that we need to center care you know care is so it's it's just not there. care and emotions are just not there in any of the discussions uh, that we are having you know so when you're for example if you're architects designing the space that uh, element of care the care that women provide to children to elderly people you know that needs to be factored in into the design so women are likely to be with uh, elderly people they are likely to be with children what are the facilities how difficult I- is it to negotiate the city with these care responsibilities uh, and the other thing that uh, you know strikes me is that whenever we talk about women and we talk about gender issues in planning then the planners are very quick to segregate spaces like in the metro okay so there's this violence while traveling so you have a pink coach only for women or you have a women's only uh, kind of space you know so that's not the answer the answer is to integrate us into these spaces make these spaces more uh, you know as easy for us to access as it is for able-bodied men so um, i know i've been writing about feminist utopias about gender you know women-friendly cities so i think that conversation you're very right needs to happen and gender definitely needs to underpin all your uh, you know discussions as, currently because
1: gender studies is not even part of the architectural curriculum to begin with so as, I'm so
0: sorry to hear this.
1: <laughs> so one has to project it in the studio in a very uh, subtle way without, uh, you know, uh, and in a very, uh, and not necessarily everyone would. So uh, because it is not a part of the curriculum or is not part of the mainstream uh, uh, educational uh, syllabus, uh, you can actually go through you, your own five that. years without even having uh, having to hear the term gender at all. So what happens is these students are taught to design in, uh, in the way in which they are seeing. So this is what they see, segregated spaces, yeah. dark alleyways, dead ends. And you see that again yeah. on the drawing board. And I can't blame them, Absolutely. they don't have references. And we are not talking about it in the design studio. So that's when I, I thought that your book should be uh, discussed inside a design studio and not, shouldn't stay just in a library. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a wonderful book and I'm so glad uh, that we got to, uh, it's been published here by Routledge, and it's, it was a real delight to kind of go through it and there is a, so much Ah, at last, someone has written it all down and especially the concluding chapter, was, was a wonderful uh, chapter to read up. and you conclude with the Thank re- you. title, I mean with, with the quote that you began with.
0: Uh, with yes, yes, it. it all comes full circle it all comes (laughs) full circle yes thank you so much thank you so much thank you so much for being with me today hope you enjoyed this episode do not miss to like share and subscribe to our podcast available on all your favorite
1: podcast apps